You may be seated. Let's pray together. God, we are gathered here this morning as a church, the body of Christ, to praise your name. And God, we long to praise your name forevermore for your amazing grace, for you alone are worthy. God, we do say thank you to our veterans, those who sacrificed much for freedom in this country. And God, we say thank you for the freedom that we have through Jesus Christ. Freedom from our sin, freedom from death, freedom to be in a right relationship with you for eternity. And God, our trust is not in any form of government or any country here on earth. Our trust and our hope is in you. As you remind us in Revelation that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. God, our hope is in you. And we desire to hear from you and from your word this morning. And so, God, we say, speak, for your servants are listening. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. It's great to be with you again today. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is where we'll spend the majority of our time this morning. Today, we're going to talk about the power of your story, the power of your story. And then next week, Tim Simpson will be preaching, and we will uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and we will focus on the power of the gospel. So a short two-week series on the power of your story, and then the power of the gospel next week. And that leads us into, believe it or not, the season of Advent on November 27th as we begin to prepare to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So today we're going to look at the power of your story, and we're going to read Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip down and read verses 11 through 32. Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now the Pharisees and sinners, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a young man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him out to, to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my fa father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. 
Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We all love a good story. We like to read a good story. We like to watch a movie that tells a good story or we like to watch a TV series that is a good story. And we like a good story because it fuels our passion to want to hear more from the storyteller. Stories inspire us, they grip our attention, and we want to read, a good story has good conflict in it. There's a conflict and then there's resolution, and that conflict is what keeps us wanting to see more. It's what keeps us on the edge of our seat during a movie. We want to see how that conflict's going to be resolved. Or it's what, week to week with a TV series, it's those directors do such a good job of keeping the conflict right till the end so that you want to come back and see what happens next week. Or in a good book, it's what keeps you turning the pages and going from chapter to chapter because you want to see what happens next and how that conflict is resolved. It's it's why my four-year-old and six-year-old daughter, they love to read the same princess stories over and over and over again. Because they're fairy tales that started once upon a time and the princess has a conflict that is something bad going to happen to her, something bad is going to happen to the kingdom, and the prince comes in and he saves the day and they all lived happily ever after. And they like that to read it over and over because they can almost feel themselves in the story. They can put themselves in the place of the princess. And what they know for now is that I am the prince. But there's coming a day, but there's coming a day when I will no longer be the prince. And I'm not looking forward to that. But they love to feel that what's going on in that story. And we like to, and we often can see ourselves in a good story. And the reality is that as followers of Christ, we each have a story. A story that tells the power of the gospel. It tells the conflict that's in our life because of sin. But then it tells the resolution of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so we each have a story that is uniquely designed to give witness to the power of the gospel. We each have that story. And what we see in Luke chapter 15 is before we get to the parable of the lost son, we see that Jesus, we see the crowd that he's talking to in verses 1 and 2 that there's two groups that are gathered around to hear Jesus. And the first group is the tax collectors and the sinners. And as we get to the parable of the lost son, that group is represented by the younger son, that they are the the morally and religious outcasts. They're the social outcasts. They don't adhere to the traditions of their fathers, the religious traditions or the ceremonial purity rules that they had. They've decided they're going to do things their own way. And because of that, they are the outcast of society. And on the other side, we have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And they are represented by the older son. They're the religious authorities. And they've decided they're going to do everything by the book. They're going to obey the law. They're going to do their best to obey the best they can. And they're going to make make sure other people obey that law as well. And they mutter about Jesus. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The attraction of of these tax collectors and sinners to Jesus is a pattern throughout his ministry. These were those who were not accepted by society. They were cut off. They were outcast. And they followed Jesus. Why? Because Jesus in Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
And so he accepts these sinners. He shares meals with them, which was a symbol of acceptance. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they don't understand. How, how could he do this? Why, why do they follow him? They don't, they don't come to our religious services. They don't pray and read scripture faithfully like we do. Why are they attracted to him? Because Jesus accepts them. No questions asked. So what we see is in the story of the lost son is we see two sons with two different paths. And maybe as we talk through this story today, you will sense and feel where you are in the story. There's a father and there's two sons. There's a younger son and an older son. And the younger son decides that he's going to ask his father for his inheritance. We're not told why, but he asks his father, he says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance, which in that day it would have split, been split two-thirds to the older son, one-third to the younger son. So the father divides his property between them. doesn't tell us that he gave the older son his property or not. It just tells us that he would at least be made aware of what his share would have been. But he divides his property between them and says, not long after that, the younger son gathered together everything he had and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And he gets to a point, the famine happens in that country, and he gets to a point where he's so hungry, he has to hire himself out to one of the men of that country, and he puts him in charge of feeding his pigs, which were unclean animals, to the Jews. So he's doing something detestable. And he's so hungry and in such great need that he wants to eat the food that the pigs are eating. He, he is at the, the bottom of the barrel. He is struggling. He is in trouble. And it says that one day, and it even says that no one in that country gave him anything. He'd even become outcast in that country. But then one day he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses and whether he woke up one morning and decided that this was the end, he had to go back to his father or maybe it was in the middle of the day when it all of a sudden hit him, something's got to change. I can't keep living like this. He comes to his senses and he says, I got to go back to my father. And he begins to put together a speech of repentance that he will share with his father when he sees him. So once he gets his speech ready, he takes off towards home. And while he is still a long way off, the father sees him coming, which leads us to believe that this father is out day in and day out. At some points during the day, he's looking for his son. He's longing for this son to return home. And so he's looking down the road and he sees his son coming and he grabs up his robe and he holds it high enough to where he can take off running. And running for men in that day was not proper. Men did not run in that culture. But he gathers up his robe and he takes off running towards his son, doesn't ask any questions, throws his arms around him, kisses him, and just loves him. And the son starts into his speech and the, and the father says, he doesn't even let him finish. He says to his servants, quick, go get the best robe. This would have been a ceremonial robe that was given to the guest of honor. He says, go get the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. A ring was a symbol of authority. Put sandals on his feet. These are sandals that would only be worn by free men, not by slaves. Put sandals on his feet. Kill the fattened calf, this calf that we have been saving and fattening him up for a celebration. Kill the fattened calf because we have to celebrate. This son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and is found. No questions asked. Not where have you been, son? Not what have you done? How much money do you have left? Just compassion, mercy, grace, and love towards that son. Meanwhile, the older brother is out in the fields and he is doing, he's done everything right. He's obeyed the father. He's done everything right. He's, he's obeyed. He's been there working for his father all along and he's out in the fields doing what he thought he should be doing. And he comes closer to the house and he hears the celebration going on. And he asks a servant, hey, well, what's going on here? And the servant says, your brother has come home and your dad is celebrating because his son is now home safe and sound. And the older brother becomes angry. 
the older brother becomes angry and he refuses to go in to the celebration. And the same dad that took off running towards the younger son goes out to the older son and pleads with him to come in. Come in and celebrate with us. Your brother is home safe and sound. And the older brother's like, hold on, dad, I don't think you understand. This doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. I've been here all along. I've obeyed everything you've told me to do. I've done all the right things. I've been here working for you and slaving for you all along that you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Don't I deserve that? But this other, this son of yours, he doesn't even call him his brother, this son of yours went off and squandered everything with prostitutes and he comes back and you kill the fattened calf for him. Dad, I don't get it. This doesn't add up. And the father says, my son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. For this brother of yours was lost and now he's found. He was dead and he's alive again. And these two groups who are listening to Jesus tell this story, they would have thought 100% that the younger son should have been cut off from the family, that he should have never entered a feast from the family, that he should have been disowned. But it turns out that the older son, that Jesus deliberately leaves the older son, the good son, in his lost and alienated state. That the, the bad son, the one who is a lover of prostitutes, that he enters the father's feast, that he is the one who is ultimately saved and in a right relationship with his father, but the good son is separated from his father. And it's at this point, as Jesus is teaching the, the gospel to the Pharisees, it's at this point in the story that we can almost hear the Pharisees gasp. Because this would have gone against everything they've been taught. That the, the good son deserved the feast. The good son deserved to have the fattened calf. He deserved to be celebrated because he had done everything right. And what Jesus is showing here is that there are two main ways that we seek acceptance into the kingdom of God. There are two main ways that we as people seek acceptance into the kingdom of God. And the first one is the way of the older brother. And that's the way of moral conformity, the way of legalism. That this older brother, the Pharisees, they thought that they, they maintained their blessing and they maintained their place in God's blessing by maintaining a high moral standard, by strict obedience to the law, that they did everything right. And because of that, God loved them and God owed them something. They thought that their good behavior is what kept them in right standing with God. So they did everything they could to obey and to, to do the right thing because that's what would give them a right relationship with God. And so they, they were strict observance of the law. This moral conformity, the only thing that would make them happy was achieving a high moral standard. That if they could just obey enough, that they would be happy. And that's so dangerous because think about the two extremes that we go between. Because if we can earn God's love, if we can obey enough that God would love us and that we can kind of play this bartering game with them like the, younger, the older son was trying to do. Dad, don't I deserve this feast? I've been here all along. I've never done anything wrong. I deserve it. But the father just begs him to come in and celebrate the son who had come home. So this way of moral conformity is a dangerous game to play because if we can achieve God's blessing through our obedience, then we become very prideful. We become very self-righteous. And we become very judgmental because we look at people who are like the younger brother and we say, man, I'm, I'm not like them. We see people walk into church and we're like, ooh, I know what they've done. Why would they be coming to church? Well, where else do we want them to go? 
And we become like the older brother. And I remember specifically sitting in church in high school. I had two incredibly godly parents growing up. Took us to church every time the doors were open. They still served faithfully in their church. Took us to church all the time. We, we were there when, on Sundays, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, church retreats, camps, you name it, we were there. But I remember in high school sitting in church on Sunday mornings, our student ministry used to sit down front in the sanctuary. And I remember sitting there on Sunday mornings and there were some weeks This was not many weeks, but there were some weeks where I felt really close to God because I had been good all week. I hadn't done very many bad things that week, so I felt like I was close to God. But then there were other weeks, which were a lot more weeks than that, where I felt distant from God because of things I had done that week. I felt guilty for things that I had done, and so I felt like my song, when I was singing, he wasn't hearing it. When I was praying, he wasn't hearing it because I was basing God's love for me on my performance instead of on his character. And that's what the Pharisees, they think they can play games with God and barter with him and obey to get something from God. And the problem with that view is what the Bible teaches us. Because Isaiah 64, 6, it says that all your righteous acts are like filthy rags. All your righteous acts, not all your bad acts, all your righteous acts. On our best day, our righteous acts separate us from a holy, holy, holy God. Not not on our worst day, on our best day, our righteous acts are like filthy rags because God is holy and we are not. And we can't do enough good things to earn God's favor. And then in Galatians 2.21, it says, if righteousness could be obtained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. If righteousness could be obtained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And these Pharisees thought that if they could just obey enough, that God would love them. And if that was the case, if we could do enough good things and obey well enough for God to love us, then Christ didn't need to come. God sent Jesus because throughout the Old Testament, we see stories of God's people, rebellion, disobedience, and they're like, God, have mercy on us, and he does, and ultimately, he sends Jesus to pay the penalty for our sin, to fulfill the law for us, and to pay the penalty for our disobedience of the law because we couldn't live up to it. So this moral conformity, this way of legalism is a dangerous game to play with God, but it's so easy for us to fall into that trap because we can measure works-based righteousness. I can say like the older brother did, but God, look at all these things I've done. Surely I deserve something. And we begin to play this bartering game with God. And then you have the younger brother, the way of self-discovery or the way of license. That he, in his view and in the view of the tax collectors and sinners, they needed to be free so that they could go pursue what was gonna make them happy. They, they wanted to be able, they didn't need these traditions and these laws and these moral obligations of their fathers. They needed to be free to go find themselves and figure out what's going to bring them fulfillment and bring us happiness. And we can, we think, we can think of people today who that's the path. And maybe that's some of us, that we go and we try fulfillment and everything. And you can fill in the blank with what people look for that fulfillment in. Maybe it's a high paying job because if they just had more money, then they'd be happy. Or maybe we we see it often of famous people, rock stars, athletes, superstars, all these movie, movie stars, these people that are famous and they end up turning to drugs, alcohol, or whatever vice it is because they think that's gonna make them happy. If they could just numb the pain that this world throws at them and the problems that they're having, then they would be happy. So they go and they do whatever they think is gonna make them happy. And the problem with this view is also what the Bible teaches. Because Romans 3, 10 through 12 tells us that there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. These people that go and try to, try to find themselves and find what's going to fulfill them and make them happy, they search for it in all the wrong things because there's no one who seeks God. 
Even the younger brother, when he was on his way back to the father, the father runs to meet him because the father and God, our father, is relentlessly pursuing us. Some people call this parable the parable of the prodigal father because the father's love is recklessly extravagant. That's the meaning of prodigal, recklessly extravagant towards both of his sons. And so no one seeks God. Ecclesiastes 7.29, most people think that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes and he says in Ecclesiastes 7.29, this only have I found. This only have I found. God made mankind upright. We were created in the image of God. In the beginning, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God and each of us are, but there was a point where Adam and Eve said, we don't really need to listen to what God said about not eating from that tree. We can handle this on our own. We know better than God does. They're putting themselves in the place of God and they go and they disobey. And because of that sin entered the world and we're all born sinful. But God made mankind upright. There was a time where, where Adam and Eve were at peace with God. They had a right relationship with God. They were not separated from God by their sin. God made mankind up, upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. We've gone in search of everything but a relationship with Jesus to make us happy. Men have gone in search of many schemes. That's what happened all throughout the Old Testament. When Solomon is writing this, there's, there's nation after nation and people after people who decided that God wasn't gonna fulfill and God wasn't gonna make them happy, so they searched for it in worshiping idols. And we do the same thing today. So what we see are these two paths, the way of the older brother, the way of moral conformity, and the way of the younger brother, the way of self-discovery. And you can probably find yourself in that story. Maybe you're somewhere in between. Maybe you're somewhere in between, but each of us has a story. And as we get to the end of this, this story, as we get to the end of where these two brothers are, we can feel and sense that this is the path that I took. But we each have a story that gives witness to the power of the gospel. And each, and God's plan of redemption that we see in Luke 19, 10, where it says that the son of man came to seek and to save that which was lost. God's big plan of redemption to seek and to save that which was lost has a lot more to do with each of you than it does with us pastors who preach on the weekends. Because the most powerful story of the gospel is yours. Your story puts flesh and bones on the power of God's grace. Nobody can argue with what God has done in your life. Nobody can say, no, he didn't do that. You know what God has done in your life, and you can share with people, hey, this is what God has done in my life. Your story gives witness to the power of the gospel. And we look throughout Scripture, and we see examples of people who couldn't help but tell what Jesus had done in their life. One of those is in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. She is at the well in the middle of the day, and as Jesus and his disciples are on a journey, they go through Samaria, and, and she's a Samaritan woman. She's at the well in the middle of the day, which was uncommon. Typically, they would be at the well early in the morning or late in the afternoon when it was cooler, but she's at the well in the middle of the day because she is one of the tax collectors in the centers. She knows her past, and she knows that she is an outcast, and she doesn't want to deal with the ridicule of being there when other women are at the well. So she's at the well in the middle of the day and Jesus and his disciples stop to get water and the disciples go to get lunch. Jesus starts a conversation with her and she says, how are you gonna get water if you don't have a bucket to draw it with? And Jesus says, if you drink the water that I give you, you will never be thirsty again for I offer living water. She's like, well, I don't really think you know who I am. And Jesus is like, oh, I know who you are. I know you've, got, you, you've had five husbands and the guy you're living with now is not, not your husband. I, I know all about you. And he offers her living water. And it tells us in John 4, 29 that she goes to her town and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? 
the first thing she does is go back to her town and say, let me tell you what Jesus did for me. He knew my past, yet he offered me living water. He offered me forgiveness. Or Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples in Acts chapter 4. They had spent time with Jesus, and now in Acts chapter 4, as the early church is, is being birthed, and Peter and John are spreading the gospel, and the Sanhedrin continues to tell them to quit speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. Peter and John are now on trial before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. The Sanhedrin was the, the Jewish ruling body. They were the religious authority, and they're on trial because they've healed a crippled beggar, and Peter and John say, look, we can't help it. We can't help but speaking about what we've seen and heard. We spent time with this Jesus and our lives are different and we can't help but telling people about it. And then towards the end of Acts, in Acts chapter 22, the apostle Paul is, is, before, is standing before a crowd in Jerusalem before he goes on trial. And he's standing before the crowd and he begins to tell them, he's like, hey, I'm, I'm Paul that used to be Saul. I used to, mur to murder and persecute followers of Jesus. But then about noon one day, I was on my way to Damascus and this bright light blinded me and it took me to my knees and it was Jesus calling out to me to stop persecuting him and to follow him. That he is the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul says, so now I no longer persecute and murder Christians. I am a follower of Christ. He tells what Jesus has done for him. In Psalm chapter 66, verse 16, it says, come and listen, all you who fear God, and let me tell you what he has done for me. Come and listen, all you who fear God, and let me tell you what he has done for me, that each of us has a story that gives witness to the power of the gospel. Your story is unique and nobody can deny what Jesus has done in your life. And there are coworkers, there are neighbors, there are people that you come into contact with day in and day out, week in and week out, who need to hear about what Jesus has done in your life. That God's plan of redemption has more to do with you than it does with those of us who preach on the weekends. And so how do we share that story? How do you put together what your testimony is? Very simply, a couple of ways to think about it. Your testimony is who you were before Christ. Who you were before Christ. This is what life was like before Christ. This is how Christ became real in my life. And then the second part is, this is what my life has been like since. This is who I was before Christ. This is how Christ became real in my life. And this is what my life has been like since. Three parts to your story. Now, I want to make it real clear that on this side, on the side of this is who we are since Christ came into our life, I want to make it real clear that life is not perfect. Now, that doesn't mean life is going to get easier. What it means is that we know where our hope is. We know who we've surrendered our life to. We know who is in control, that we gave up being in control when Christ became real and we surrendered to him. And another easy way to look at it is just to think of a couple of words, a couple of words of what your life was like before Christ. And so your words might be something like, I was hopeless. Before I encountered Christ, I was hopeless. There was things that I was dealing with in, in life, problems that I had, sickness, death, whatever it is, and I was hopeless and I had no peace in my life. But then I surrendered my life to Jesus. And now since then I have hope, I have peace. Because I know that my hope is not in anything this world has to offer. I know that my hope is in Jesus. And because of that, I'm at peace with God. So no matter what happens, I know where my hope is. Or it might be that before Christ you, you experienced, I just felt this shame and this guilt and I felt the burden of sin that I couldn't bear by myself. But then I surrendered my life to Jesus. And I know that he has forgiven me of my sin and I know that he took the burden of my sin to the cross at Calvary and his blood shed on the cross cleanses me from that sin and takes away that burden of my sin. It doesn't mean that I'm not convicted by sin, my sin, I'm still convicted when I sin, but I know that he has paid the penalty for my sin and disobedience. So it's who you were before Christ. 
how Christ became real in your life and what your life has been like since. Very simple ways to look at your testimony. So I'd ask you this week to think about your story. Write down your testimony. Write down who you were before Christ, how Christ became real in your life, and what your life has been like since. Take the time to think through that and to write it down. And then you may want to type it up and send it to a trusted friend and say, hey, can you help me piece this together? Can you help me work on my story? Does it sound good? Does it, does it flow okay? And you can then begin practicing it. Maybe share it with a friend. Say, hey, can I get together? I want to share my story with you. And you can, you can help me put it together and put the pieces together. Because the most powerful story of the gospel is yours. Because there are people that you come in contact with that you know that need to hear about what Jesus has done in your life. Maybe their life has fallen apart and they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And you can tell them, hey, look, I've never been in that same situation, but I can tell you what Jesus has done for me. Because each of us has a story of the power of the gospel in our life. And so in your worship guide, you have a place where you can write notes on the backside. And you may not have written anything else down today, but what I want to ask you to do is to take that out. And before you leave this morning, write down a couple of names. Write down one or two names of people that you know that need to hear your story. People that you know that need to hear what God has done in your life. Maybe people you work with and you know that they're struggling with a difficult time and you know they don't have a relationship with Christ and you can say, hey, can we just go to lunch and let me share with you what Jesus has done in my life and this is the difference that it's made. So write down those names and begin to pray for those people. Begin to pray for an opportunity to share with them and pray that they would be receptive to hearing your story. And then there may be others here this morning who, who are thinking, Brad, I don't, I don't have this story. I know what my life is like before Christ because that's where I am now. I've never had that moment where I surrendered everything to Jesus and let him be Lord of my life. I want to take you back to the love of the Father. In the parable of the prodigal father, the love of the father is the same towards both sons. His love is the same towards the son who went out and squandered his wealth and wild living as it is towards the son who did everything right. He runs out to meet this son, no questions asked, greets him, hugs him and kisses him, celebrates that his son is home. He goes out and pleads, pleads with the good son to come in and celebrate in the feast. The love of the father is not based on terrible behavior or good behavior. God's love is based on his character, not whether we are good or not, because if it was, we'd all be in trouble. And the gospel is different from both of those views. In the view of the gospel, the gospel says that everyone is loved. Everyone is loved. Everyone is wrong. Both are wrong, but everyone is loved. And we're called to recognize this and change. And that's the difference between the younger brother and the older brother. One of them recognized their need for Jesus, and the other one never did. But the love of the Father is the same towards both. And that's what Jesus is pointing out to those religious leaders. That just like these tax collectors and sinners need acceptance, you need acceptance. You need forgiveness. And so if you don't have that story, I take you back to the love. I take us all back to the love of the Father. That his love is for everyone. And he is a good, good Father. And loving toward all he has made. And your life, your story, gives witness to that love. Let's pray together.